The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome, everyone. It's what, Tuesday night? I'm a little confused, but I think it's Tuesday night, and I think we have another great show for you. We've got a terrific one, in fact, especially given the current circumstances that we are all faced with. We are witnessing things that are rather unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, and we want answers. Well, someone that may have some of those answers is our guest tonight, Chris Newby. Chris actually has written a book called Bitten, and it reveals groundbreaking evidence that sheds new light on the genesis of Lyme disease, one of the most baffling and controversial diseases of our time, maybe up until this point, anyway. It delves into the life of Willie Bergdorfer, who is the discoverer of the bacterium that actually causes the disease, and his secret work developing bug-borne weapons during the Cold War. But as we look back on what Chris wrote in the book Bitten, and we start to look around us, and we know that the virus we're dealing with currently mysteriously sprang up very, very close to a secret weapons uh, bio lab in China. It raises a lot of questions. So we're going to talk about Lyme's disease. We're going to talk about uh, that other pandemic. Um, I'm Sometimes I'm afraid to say the name because we get certain uh, restrictions on our streaming channels if we are not careful. But you know what I'm talking about. And we're going to talk about uh, maybe the relationship between those, uh, those well, one is a virus, one is a bacterium-based disease, and uh, the insects that transmit them, and uh, secret bioweapons projects and programs and laboratories. And we're going to see if we can put any connections together. So again, Chris Newby will be our guest. She's a science writer and an author. Looking forward to this conversation. She's been on before. Great guest. Looking forward to having her back. So... Um, couple of things I want to I want to mention before we get going. First of all, I, I have to thank, and I haven't seen uh, Phoebe in our chat room the last couple of nights. Maybe she'll be in tonight. Uh, but I do want to thank Phoebe for becoming a Patreon supporter on our Patreon page. That helps us uh, secure, you know, do a lot of the things that we need to do to produce the program. Patreon is a great way for people to offer just you know, a little bit of support. And it, it, it makes it easy and automatic, so you don't have to remember to do it. And it, it's kind of like a subscription thing. It's not required. But if you feel like contributing in that way, just go to patreon.com. And uh, it's slash Joha, J-O-H-A-W. Very easy to find and a very, very easy to help support the program. So thank you to Phoebe Kellev, um for uh, being uh, our, one of our newer Patreon supporters. I try to make sure I recognize everybody that is part of our chat room when they become a Patreon supporter. So thank you. Another great piece of information, news, I guess, that I want to share with you. And this is really exciting, not just to me, but to everybody here involved in the show. Slick Eddie and, of course, those who have worked in the past, like Alex, my daughter, who was my producer for a long time, or assistant producer. And also um, Orion, who uh, has worked here for some time and uh, isn't isn't working with us now, but may come back, depending on how his, his circumstances change. And uh, of course, I did say Slick Eddie. It's it's we have surpassed. Now I have to I have to make this very very clear. We started on a new podcast platform in January of this year. 
So January of this year through, where are we now? Uh, we just entered September. So I guess eight full months or so. Eight full months and some days. By the way, Chris Newby, our guest, is in our in our YouTube chat room. Hello, Chris. Looking forward to chatting with you in a few minutes. Um, so we, we, we started using this new podcast platform in January of this year. As of Labor Day weekend, we surpassed one million downloads of the program. One million downloads of the podcast version of this program. That's pretty exciting. It's pretty cool. And I, I want to thank everybody who listens to the show as a podcast um, and thank you all for making the show so popular in a podcast platform. Of course, we stream live. Of course, we air live. However, the podcast version is just a very convenient way for a lot of people to listen, and I encourage that. And I encourage you, if you are a podcast subscriber, again, no fee for that, just so you know. You just have to click the subscription thing on your podcast uh, app on your phone or your other smart device. Very easy to do. And it gets downloaded to your device automatically. And then you have an archive of programs there to listen whenever it's convenient for you. But if you do that, if you're one of the people that enjoys listening to the show in that format, please share it on your social media and with your friends. Text it to all your friends. How's that How's that for sharing? Yeah, it might be a little intrusive, but do it anyway. <laughs> kidding? Not kidding. Um, so, yeah, so share it on Facebook, uh, Instagram, whatever. You know, your social media that you... That you, you, that you prefer, share it there and let people know about the programs. And we talk about everything. Last night we talked about John Lennon, which was really, as you know, uh, a really a cool thing for me, given, given the fact I'm such a huge Beatles fan. Um, and he, he died so tragically. And our guest, um, Ken Womack, it was just a, he's just a walking encyclopedia of Beatles and John Lennon knowledge in his book, Addressing the last year or so of John Lennon's life, demonstrating that he was in a renaissance. John Lennon was coming out of what many people can consider to be his recluse stage. And he was recording, he was writing, he was making appearances again, he was doing interviews again. And uh, it all came to a very abrupt halt right when it got started on December 8th of 1980. Which, again, I mentioned it last night, it'll be 40 years. John Lennon died at 40. It'll be 40 years since he was killed this December 8th, uh, which is just hard to believe, particularly because I was alive when it happened and I remember the day. I remember the night. I remember the announcement as it came over. I was watching Monday Night Football and it was just, it interrupted the program. And I just could not believe what I was hearing. Just the same, same thing when Elvis died. I just could not believe what I was hearing. But anyway, back to the point. Thank you. A million downloads in uh, basically eight months and, and counting. So thank you so much. Again, please share it when you can. Also, I encourage you, even if you prefer the podcast version, to go to YouTube and or Twitch and subscribe to uh, either or both of those platforms, too, because we do different things on those platforms. It's not quite the same as the podcast. A lot of the same stuff. But uh, there is a difference, too. And we live stream there. We have chat rooms in both. I'd like to say hello to all of our chatters as that those chat rooms start filling up. They usually get really rocking and rolling around a uh, half hour into the program. So thank you to everybody, particularly early birds who get, get there right at the beginning, right at the start of the program. It's beyond reality. We have a terrific show for you tonight. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest tonight is Chris Newby, author of the book Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Chris was also the senior producer of a Lyme disease documentary called Under Our Skin, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was a 2010 Oscar semifinalist. Previously, Chris was a science and technology writer for Stanford University, University, Apple, and other Silicon Valley companies. She currently lives in California. Chris, welcome to the program. Actually, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you here with us again. The invitation. I I, I admire your audience who's very open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> they are very open-minded. Not only open-minded, but they're very clever and insightful. They often uh, guide much of our conversations during these programs because they really have a lot of knowledge themselves, and I really appreciate their input. I have to ask you, you're in California. I'm hoping that you're nowhere threatened by any of these uh, fires or any of that stuff going on. No, I'm not, but the air quality is dismal here. Like, I had a friend with uh, a cabin in the Sierras, and it was torched overnight. Oof. So I feel like I'm breathing her cabin in right now. Oh, yikes. And the, um, Very tragic. And, and I know one of them, If uh, I, I'm not you know completely in tune with what's happening, but... Uh, one of those fires, maybe one of the worst ones, was caused by some gender reveal stunt by a, an expecting couple or something. What was going on there? Yeah, um, they were. That's the the in, the fireworks incident that yeah. um, destroyed their cabin. And I just can't imagine what kind of people would <laughs> would think that yes. in this. This huge heat wave that doing fireworks would be a good idea. Heat wave and very, very just you know dry conditions all the way around. Um, you know, it's a powder keg. It's a it's a tinder box ready to go up. So I hope everybody who uh, is threatened or being affected by these fires is um, is is getting out of the way, following the instructions of authorities. And um, you know, remember, uh, property loss is one thing; life loss is a completely different thing. So please, everyone, be safe as safe as you possibly can. Uh, these things are very, very tragic. However, we are not only living in a time of fires and uh, hurricanes in the Gulf Coast and all these weird weather and natural uh, disasters. I suppose we've got just a strange time all the way around. We are living in a very strange time, aren't we, Chris? We are. It's, it seems like end of days almost with uh, pestilence. We're talking about pestilence tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I heard an interview uh, the other day uh, where there are obviously religious scholars that are starting to, uh, you know, check the check boxes of the the list of things that's supposed to happen at the end of times. And, oh, and yeah. a lot of people are making these arguments that we are there. Now, I've heard this discussion before. Uh, you know, people kind of try to fit it to any time they, they happen to be observing. But uh, so let's hope that's not what we're faced with. Um, let's talk about uh, your interest in this particular topic, what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, I think it started for you primarily because you actually contracted Lyme's disease, right? Yes, in 2002, my my family went 
on a beach vacation to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. And uh, we came back, and a week later, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been before. And that started what is like a 17-year journey for me to try and understand what went wrong with tick-borne diseases. Um, It took my husband and I uh, a year, 10 doctors, and $60,000 to get diagnosed with two what I now know are very two common tick-borne diseases, Lyme disease and babesiosis, which is like a malaria-like tick-borne disease. And then it took us another five to six years to get back to being fully functional adults. And during that recovery, uh, because I'm a science writer and an engineer by training, uh, you know, I'm just curious and I need data. So I teamed up with a really talented filmmaker in Marin, and we worked on this documentary for three and a half years called Under Our Skin with Open Eye Pictures. And, you know, that's really where I traveled all across the United States and listened to interviews on Lyme patients and tick-borne disease patients across the U.S. And I realized, you know, holy blankety blank, this is a huge epidemic that's unrecognized and is being ignored by the government. So, um, you know, that went through the film festival circuit and did really well. It was Oscar semifinalist. And, you know, I just think it did a lot of good. It was the first documentary really focused on Lyme disease that showed the patient side of the story. And it showed the politics of the disease and how the well of information for this disease had been poisoned in a way uh, because what's in the field is different than what's in the medical journals. So... um, I was happy about that film, and uh, I was ready to move on with my life. I was—I got a really good job as a science writer at Stanford Medical School, which I really, really loved, and I've done that for 10 years. But in the middle of that time, two things happened that sort of, you know, made me go back to Lyme disease. One was I—I uh, I spoke to a person who was in the company, the CIA's company, during the Cold War, and he said, you know, the you know, I've done a lot of bad things. He'd done assassinations, et cetera. And he says the worst thing, I, the strangest thing I ever did was drop infected ticks on Cuban sugar workers um, right after the Bay of Pigs, which was, you know, during the film we'd heard rumors of ticks being weaponized or used as biological weapons, but that was like incontrovertible proof to me. Yeah. That it was real. And then the second thing was I had a filmmaker who went to visit the discoverer of Lyme disease, Willie Bergdorfer, who's a really talented um, medical entomologist who worked for the NIH and Rocky Mountain Lab in Montana. And he interviewed him for like three uh, years and, I mean, three hours. And during that time, Willie said, hey, I think that the outbreak around Lyme, Connecticut was caused by a biological weapons accident gone wrong. So... When I heard those two things, it's like, oh, you know, I could go back to my life. I'm healthy now. Uh, I want to just put all this really negative stuff behind me. But then I thought, you know, this is a crime against humanity. I'm I'm better equipped to really figure out if this is the truth or not because of my background. So I did it. And then five years later, I published Bitten, which is really the history of uh, the biological weapons program and how the government weaponized ticks, fleas, and mosquitoes. And it's all about Willie Bergdorfer, who was in the biological weapons program for many years. 
Before we get into the details of the book and the, the information that you uncovered in in writing the book, I want to take you back to 2002 when you when you contracted Lyme disease yourself. What was the status of Lyme disease as a as a I don't know uh, an epidemic or uh, where what were cases common in 2002? Has it has it progressed uh, over the years and become more and more common? Well, it was. Uh... The causative agent, the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi, was uh, identified first in 81. All through the 70s, it was the cases of this strange illness were growing, growing, growing. Um, and since then, which is since, so, so my book shows that the first cases really appeared late 60s. And since then, which is like over 50 years ago, they have only increased uh, on average. So uh, it's, like Lyme disease itself is the largest vector-borne disease in the U.S., largest tick-borne disease in the U.S., but there are other co-infections that I explore in the book, and they're probably just, they're more deadly and maybe more prevalent in certain areas, but the scientific community has sort of ignored them. And so it's a big problem. There are, like in 2017, the CDC reported that there are 400,000 cases a year. That's about 1,000 a day on average. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went down a little bit in 2018, but the cases became so hard to manage for state health departments that they just gave up counting. Like the state of Massachusetts just said, okay, this, this CDC requirement for counting is too complicated. We're just going to stop counting. <laughs> you know. So <laughs> they went down in 2018. I started calling around public health departments this year, and they said, oh, we're not even counting them anymore because we've got COVID, there's a more important epidemic going on. <laughs> so that's the state of that disease. Wow. So um, you said 400,000 cases. That was 2017. Do you believe that that number is uh, light because uh, a lot of cases don't get diagnosed? Yes, I, I think it's very low. I mean, I had I talked to one CEO of an animal testing company, in the Northeast, and he said, oh, I think the official count of cases is 100 times lower than it really is. 100 times. This is a guy who has dog testing, and so there's no politics involved, right? Um, The other thing is with Lyme disease, and this is sort of like appalling to me when I see the COVID stuff going on. So Lyme disease, you know, discovered in 81, there is no accurate fast test for Lyme disease in the first month. It's an antibody test, which relies on your body's response to an infection, and usually you don't have enough antibodies to measure until you're three weeks into the disease. So, uh, you know, a lot of times if you have Lyme disease and another co-infection, by the time you, you get all the testing back, it could be two months, three months, and by then you have a chronic form of the, of the disease. And, um, you know, even with classic Lyme disease, the experts all agree that 10 to 20% of the people with classic Lyme who are treated with textbook treatments go on to be chronically ill, and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. There's not enough research on that. I know several people who had suffered with what they called uh, a mysterious illness for quite some time and ultimately were diagnosed with Lyme disease. It took months and in some cases years for the diagnosis to come through and for it to be properly treated. What makes this thing so difficult to diagnose 
and treat in a timely manner? Well, the bacterium, which are these little corkscrew bacterium that are transmitted from a tick bite, they immediately, when they get into a warm body in the bloodstream through the tick saliva, they they head for the hills. They go to immune-protected sites, so uh, behind the blood-brain barrier or maybe in your knee where you have some scar tissue and the blood doesn't get in there. And, and so then they just camp out in these places that is away from the blood because the blood has these sentries that are going to kill diseases and microbes, mm-hmm. you have antibodies. So, um, so it, you, it's hard to draw blood and find it, find the organism in there, first of all, you know, and you can't do brain autopsies to diagnose a disease. And then the other thing is it's a neurological disease, and it, it, it likes to hang out near your nerves in the brain. Or, and so it's a disease that we have traveling pains and traveling aches and twitches, and uh, it's different in everybody. So the doctors get this patient that says, oh, my knee hurt last week, and now I had a headache this week, or it feels like I have arthritis or MS or chronic fatigue or irritable bowel syndrome. And it just, the doctors think, oh, this person is a hypochondriac, right. they're just needy, right. which is what happened to me. You know, I was eight months into it, and they said, you know, the infectious disease doctor had already been to eight doctors, says, oh, you're just, uh, you know, your husband's a powerful you know, Silicon Valley guy, and you're just uh, a Silicon Valley housewife wanting attention. Oh, <laughs> you have a psychosomatic illness, and it was just, both my husband and I got sick on the same day. We had the same symptoms, and it was just like we rolled our eyes and said, uh, something is so wrong here. Did you ever walk into the doctor's office and say, test me for Lyme disease? You know, or during yes, that, yes, during I that did. period? I mean, everyone... <laughs> I, you know, I'm an engineer, so I had plenty of spreadsheets of the unfolding of the symptomology over a year and uh, every drug and treatment we took. And every one of the 10 doctors I talked to, I said, you know, we're on Martha's Vineyard. It was number one in the, Mar- Massachusetts was number one for Lyme disease last year. Shouldn't you test us for Lyme disease? And they all said, no, that's like a rare disease. Wow. The infectious diseases doctors at Stanford said, or one of them said, you know, for you both to get that disease would be like winning the lottery. It was just like, oh my gosh, and no it's one not, it's, ever wanted wants to win this lottery. Yeah, and it's Believe not me. it's not like the test is you know some intrusive, um, uh, you know, uh, arduous process. You know, for them to deny the test just because it, it seems unlikely to them, um, it seems a little strange. It does, and that you know that was that was what was puzzling to me and drove me. To drove me in, in an obsessive way to do a documentary and a book. You know, it's like, I'm a curious science writer. It's like, wow, this just doesn't make sense. There must be more to this. And especially the way the CDC behaved to it, towards it. It's just like very secretive about everything associated with the disease, not wanting to talk to the public. Like I went to an infectious disease conference. This is when I'm a Stanford reporter, and I say, I go up to the head of the vector-borne disease group in Fort Collins, and I said, hey, can we talk about Lyme disease for a second? And he just turns his back on me, and he says, "Wow, talk to our communications department. So (laughs) it just wasn't normal. Like every other disease, the researchers say, hey, my disease is the worst. Give us funding from NIH. You know, it was the opposite. Uh, So uh, you are finally diagnosed properly, and you start the treatment, and you start, you know, obviously recover. Uh, two quick, two questions. Quick one first. Uh, do you have any lasting effects from the disease? You know, I don't. Uh, 
my husband has had a couple of relapses, but uh, I attribute it to I had IV antibiotics earlier than he did, mm-hmm. so um, it was able to kill the buggers hanging out in my brain. So once my husband got IV, I think he was better. We feel like we're cured right now. Good, good. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah, absolutely. So the other question is, you know, people get sick all the time from various things. I mean, there are a lot of illnesses that can affect people. Most people, when they get sick, don't decide they're going to, you know, start digging deep into uh, the mysteries of the disease they have and end up writing a book about it. What made you so curious about Lyme disease that uh, ultimately it became, um, you know, a, a, I guess I would call it a, a, a passion for some time and, and led to a, to this book bitten. I, that's not something everybody does. You know, I think the experience of seeing all these sufferers across the United States, like, you know, Iowa, Colorado, as far as north as Alaska, San Diego, Florida, and especially on the Eastern seaboard, you know, I just, because I had been through it for also, I just felt so much empathy and I felt, like there's such an injustice with this suffering going on. So I'm driven because I just don't want another family to go through what we did. Yeah. I mean, we totally spent our college fund, you Jeez. know, and uh, I could no longer work. My husband would uh, <laughs> go to work and pretend like he had half a brain, but he had to go to work because he had health insurance. I mean, we have this system where, all our health insurance is tied to our employment. And if you're too sick to work, you don't have health insurance. So it's just like this horrible, nightmarish catch-22. So, uh, you know, it, to me, it's the injustice. I feel like, and especially when I found out that a lot of this epidemic, I think, is driven by a biological weapons experiment with these detached scientists, Cold War scientists, who didn't think about you know, the broader implications. You know, we're releasing genetically modified mosquitoes, and we're not thinking about yeah. unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a whole discussion in itself for sure. I do remember recently, within the last couple of years, there was, uh, you know, much fanfare made about releasing these, uh, in some way made sterile mosquitoes into the environment. I don't know if it was Florida or if maybe it may even have been Central America. And uh, they expected the idea was that these sterile mosquitoes mosquitoes would mate with the non-sterile mosquitoes, and they wouldn't produce off offspring, so it would lower the population. And it backfired. It actually got worse instead of better, if I remember the reports correctly. No, that's correct. I mean, I had someone from the CDC say that, and you know, it goes back to my the thing I always say is nature always wins. Yes. You know, insects and arachnids they have fast generations, and no matter what, it's human hubris to think we can defeat that fast uh, Darwinian evolution that they can, you know, pull on us. Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. So as you started to investigate this and you started to put pieces together, tell me when you started to suspect, and maybe it was right from the very, very beginning, that this may have, this disease may have had uh, laboratory origins of, or connections in some way. Well, um, so I got the, the video of Willie Bergdorfer's confession, and he had advanced Parkinson's, and he thought perhaps it was because when, during his discovery, infect, Lyme-infected rabbit urine splashed in his eyes, and he was very sick. So anyways, it's sort of karmic justice that maybe that he suffered from 
the disease that he discovered. So um, what, you know, uh, so I went and interviewed him after that a few months later, and he still was, you know, he's very sick, and I talked to him for a few hours, and that's where he really said, yeah, I was part of the biological weapons program for decades with Fort Detrick, which was the, um, the huge, the brains of the biological weapons program during the Cold War. And he said, you know, I was tasked with trying to get mosquitoes and ticks to multiply faster so we could infect them and drop them on our enemies. He said, I put plague in fleas, you know, so plague, the disease that yeah. has wiped out. Wiped out <laughs> half, yeah, half of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, uh, and then yellow fever and mosquitoes. So he said that, but I knew as a journalist that, and a science writer, that one person's word isn't the same as proof, right? Right. And so I, tr- I went to see his files in the National Archive because the NIH had picked them up because he's a historical figure, right? And so I went through all of those 33 boxes at the National Archives in Maryland, and there was nothing about the Lyme disease discovery, the thing he's most famous for. Wow. Which is weird. It's like... In uh, Sherlock Holmes, it's the sound of the dog in the night. There was no sound of the dog in the night. There was no files on his discovery. So that was just like a head scratching. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and so that was sort of the end of the road for me, and I went back to my job. Uh, and and then I had a lucky break that Willie Bergdorfer, after that meeting, had had a crisis of, a con- a crisis of conscience and had called up a guy, a professor at associate professor at BYU and said, I want to donate the documents that I didn't give to the NIH that I hid in my garage to BYU. Will you take them? And so wow. he, these are all his original lab notebooks from when he worked on the biological weapons program in Dietrich, many of which had been torched when the program was canceled. So this professor had heard through the grapevine that I was writing Willie Bergdorfer's story and he said, do you want to look at them before I put them in the archives? So that's really where I saw sort of the, the depth and breadth of biologic, the bug-borne biological weapons program. And it was just like jaw-dropping. I mean, what I didn't realize before I started this project is that the biological weapons program was almost as big as the Manhattan nuclear project, project for the U.S. I mean, it was supposed to be the, the poor man's nuclear weapons these bugs, and it was just as secretive. And so uh, a lot of these documents were destroyed when Nixon stopped the biological weapons program in 72. So I was, you know, luckily the government does everything in triplicate with agendas and memos, and, and so if you can find, like, these Willy Garage files in scientists' garages, you can piece it together like a, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, and that's what I did. And, um, you know, my objective was to prove that uh, I tried to keep it focused because there were so many biological weapons crimes out there, but I tried to keep it focused on was what Willie was saying true? You know, is the outbreak around Lyme, Connecticut due to a biological accident? So that's what I try to present. I I say what I know, what I don't know. It's not 100% proved, but it's a pretty compelling circumstantial case. And we'll, we'll get into a little more detail on that particular case, but in a general sense, how extensive from what you learned is 
uh, biological weapons testing and particularly bug-borne biological weapons testing. I mean, is this is this something that well, you said it was about as big as the Manhattan Project and just as secret? Have and you also mentioned an instance where uh, the uh, I think it was ticks that were dropped on Cuban sugar workers. Uh, are there other instances of that? How deep does this program, these types of programs, go? Well, um, there are uh, rumors, which uh, people are gathering, gathering a lot of evidence in right now, that we dropped uh, infected insects on Korea in the Korean War and Vietnam. So I've had anecdotal confirmation of that, but not, not hard evidence, but other people are working on that. And then there were plans, I mean, all these plans were focused on the Soviet Union at the time, uh, and so there were supporting experiments on domestic soil for those Russian experiments. And, and those are the things that, you know, you could say that the Lyme outbreak, this is my working hypothesis, was a series of unfortunate accidents. So the first, like, <laughs> like crazy Army experiment was that if the Army was going to drop infected ticks on the Soviet Union. They wanted to know how far these ticks would crawl over the months to years when they infected them. So they hired this one professor at uh, Old Dominion University to take hundreds of thousands of ticks and make them radioactive and then release them in a field, uh, in a grid, uh, and then every month go out and collect the ticks in each square bring them back to the lab. They were radioactive, so they could tell from a Geiger counter how many had traveled how far. And then they would take the ticks and release them back in the squares. And they'd keep doing that for years, right? So the problem with that is one of the ticks, the species of ticks that they released, are these really aggressive man-biting ticks called lone stars. And uh, before these experiments in the late 60s, they had never like creeped above the Mason-Dixon line, but when they released them for this experiment on the Atlantic Bird Flyway, all of a sudden, two years later, these ticks were camping out in Long Island and around Connecticut. So what's bad about those ticks? Well, they carry, they carry rick, spotted fever rickettsials, rickettsials, which is small bacteria that are like the most deadly back, tick-borne bacteria <laughs> in the U.S., so all of a sudden, there was a bunch of people dying on Long Island of that. Also, these ticks um, ha- like induce red meat allergy from their saliva in certain people. So all of a sudden, there's this epidemic now in the U.S. of people with red meat allergy. So they can't eat a hamburger. They can't order a sub, sub sandwich from Subway without going into anaphylactic shock and ending up in the ER later that night. So, uh, you know... That's part of the problem. Uh, there's also, you know, releasing ticks on Cuba, which is 50 miles as the bird flies yeah. to Florida. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be part of the the curious thing of, about this is that it this is a weapon that's very unpredictable and could uh, backfire in so many ways. And, and forget the testing. Forget testing I- I domestically. Let's say that there's a, they, they decided to use whatever uh, they put into ticks. They drop them over the Soviet Union. How long before those infected ticks make their way to Europe? How long before those infected ticks make their way across the uh, the ocean on a, a ship or something and are back here in the United States? This is not a weapon you can control very well, it doesn't seem. Well, and the military leaders... Um 
came to that conclusion in the early 60s. So they pivoted, and what they did is they took a lot of the diseases that are carried by ticks. So tularemia is one, it's a small little bacteria, and um, uh, Venezuelan equine encephalitis, some of these tick-borne diseases, and they would aerosolize them. So they would grow them in large vats, um, freeze-dry them, put them into little powderized particles, mix them with a food source, get them at just the right humidity, and then they had, over all these experiments, some which were on the unsuspecting public, they would spray them from planes or um, boats or buoys or scuba divers. Um, there are some famous experiments where they experimented with live bacteria around San Francisco in the the um, Pennsylvania Turnpike Tunnels in the New York subway. Uh, in Alaska, they used tularemia, the live bacteria there. So, um, you know, it's just appalling. It's sort of, and that's one of the reasons Nixon in 1968 said, enough of this, you know, this can backfire. So finally, some prevailing minds said, this is out of control. I'm going to jump around a little bit, and I don't want to get into this current pandemic in too much detail, but I do need to ask at this point, uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that COVID-19 is something that has had been uh, at least um, altered or in some way manipulated in a laboratory. And there's additional speculation that it was released. Well, some people say it was re- it was released accidentally, and some people say it's a bit of a dry run. Do you have any sense either way? And this might be the million-dollar question, and we're going to come back to COVID, but just in a quick sense. Do you feel one, strongly one way or another? Well, there's no way I can know or anyone can know at this point, because China is the most secretive government on the planet right now. But, I mean, based on what I've seen, you know, exploring the government accidents with uh aerosolized uh, agents, it's possible, you know. And so what we do know for sure is Wuhan Laboratory in China has had a record of lack safety, and the government raised flags about their um, several accidents there. We do, do know that they were experimenting with bat viruses. And just what I know about rickettsias, which were weaponized for the U.S. government, is just once those floaty little particles get in the air, same with anthrax, you can see how it would be so easy for someone to, you know, a lab worker to get it in their nose or their throat and then go to the meat market and cough and then game over. So uh, I think it's possible, and time will tell, because um, with our ability to genetically sequence these organisms, you know, the, I think the truth will eventually come out. But I, I think we can't focus on that right now. We just have to focus on containing what we have now. Yeah. Um, the the uh, Much of this discussion is focused on what we know or what you know about uh, U.S. programs and U.S. experimentation. We, we brought it China into the discussion a little bit here talking about COVID. But do you fear that other governments around the world maybe haven't stopped their uh, programs with these types of things, and uh, we risk an even larger problem down the road with a uh, an accidental release of some type of biological agent. Um, so the 
other countries, uh, mostly Russia and Iran, uh, it's well documented that they violated treaties and they were working on it. I don't know about now, but I think, uh, you know, when I was at Stanford, I sat in on a lot of biosecurity uh, lectures, and they, they're they all terrified that anybody can brew these dangerous germs yeah. by buying stuff on eBay and setting up a lab in their basement. So they're all terrified with that. But I have to say that almost every guest speaker in this course would, you know, the, the instructor would say, uh, the person who ran the course would say, well, what's your biggest fear? And they would all say, a flu virus. You know, so yeah. I, I think they all saw that this, they, they all, all the experts said, it's not if, it's when. And they all felt like we were woefully unprepared. And sure enough, we are. Well, I mean, if, if let's assume it was all completely innocent and there was no manipulation and no anything nefarious, uh, but if you're sitting back and watching the effects of this particular pandemic on the economy, on the attitude of the nation, on uh, politics, all of the above, you have to say, wow, if we wanted to mess things up, this was a pretty effective way of doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, uh, there's blowback. Anytime you use, use a biologic weapon, there's blowback. It's really hard to protect yourself. Right. Um, and that's that's the thing that I learned is like any time they experimented with maybe like 20 or 30 different candidates for a biological weapons program. But one of the requirements to make it something you'd put on the shelf of the arsenal was, is there a vaccine to protect our own soldiers? You, um, you mentioned uh, ticks, mosquitoes. There was a third... Fleas. Fleas, right. Um, ticks seem to be an odd uh, choice for the for spreading a disease. Uh, they don't, I mean, maybe, maybe I misunderstand the nature of the tick, but they don't seem to travel a lot. And when I looked at the map of Lyme disease infections, it's pretty well focused to the Northeast. So it stays, they stay pretty regional. And uh, so why ticks of, 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 you know, all those options? I mean, it seems like mosquitoes make a lot more, uh, cover a lot more distance in a shorter time. They considered it a long-acting stealth weapon where you couldn't prove who did it. I mean, there are no fingerprints on the backs of the ticks. I'll uh-huh. just read what they said in a 1953 Fort Dietrich report from the Army. Uh, and I'll just tell you that arthropods are eight-legged ticks. So the advantages of arthropods as bioweapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier, and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. So, you know, they would look at total economic destruction as multifaceted, and having infected ticks in a region would make people sick. Uh, And so rather than... uh, Killing someone and having one undertaker, you know, be overwhelmed, you would have someone sick and there would be, you know, five healthcare workers and three relatives taking care of that chronically ill person. Mm. Part of total economic warfare. What about the idea that, uh, you know, there was experimentation on these bio agents as uh, well um, that are actually have good intentions, but those same. Uh, experiments could yield something catastrophic as well. You know, whether they're trying to modify uh, bacteria to, you know, uh, 
become help in the fight against the obsolescence of uh, antibiotics or they're trying to modify viruses. In some cases, they're trying to use viruses as cancer killers. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of what would be considered well-intentioned experimentation going on, too. Does that pose a risk to us as well? Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, it's all about having well-designed, control, controlled studies, you know, releasing the genetically modified uh, mosquitoes in bacteria in uh, Brazil, I mean, before they had tried it out in a laboratory situation, to me seemed irresponsible knowing what I, I knew about the Army's tick experiments. What is, should, do we have to fear our own government when it comes to this stuff? I mean, I, I would say the answer is yes, given what you've already cited. Um, I just, you know, I think we need to learn from history, and that's why I applaud Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey's. Uh, he read Bitten, and he was inspired, and he added uh, a, a budget line item to investigate or to have the government declassify all their experiments with insects and arthropods during the Cold War. And, you know, the reason, the reason to do that, first of all, is for public health reasons. If we know what germs they released in what areas, we can better diagnose and treat patients. Uh, the second thing is to learn from history. It's like, hey, see how this bug-borne accident went wrong. You know, we need to not do that again. How long has his efforts, how long have those efforts been live, uh, and has he made any progress? So he uh, first added the investigation byline last July, and uh, that budget line got struck during the the Trump impeachment brouhaha. I I mean, I never heard exactly why it got cut. They Mm -hmm. just wanted to ram the appropriation bills through and avoid controversy. He reintroduced it again this July. So uh, I hope it passes this fall. It's on the docket. Um, He rewrote it so that there's less chance that the military can wiggle out of the disclosures. So I think that's good. Is it part of the the defense uh, budget? It's the NDAA. So it's the 2020 defense appropriations bill. Tonight we're talking with Chris Newby, science writer and an author. We're talking about her book, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Quickly, we'll look ahead. Tomorrow night we have Colin Dickey on the program to talk about various paranormal topics. He's done a lot of research and investigation, and we'll, he'll share his experiences with us. Monday night, of course, Friday night at Booze, Brews, and Bros, and then Monday night, Michael Terzi will be here. He is an angelic medium, and we'll have a conversation about his work Monday night here on the show. Uh, again, we're talking with Chris Newby tonight. Newby is spelled N-E-W-B-Y, in case you were looking up the website, chrisnewby.com. Chris is with a K. Chris, um, how do you uh, present all of this information that we've been talking about tonight so far in the book? How is it, how is it presented to the reader? Well, it's uh, specifically a genre called narrative nonfiction, where I take stale um, historical facts and weave it in a story. So I, I would say primarily it's a biography of Willy Bergdorfer, who's this very intelligent, uh, hardworking Swiss-American microbiologist, basically medical zoologist, 
parasitologist. And he comes over in 1952 from Switzerland, just really excited to make his mark in science, and he almost immediately gets sucked up into the American bioweapons program. And so I show sort of the moral and ethical dilemmas that he goes through, through, uh, you know, through these files that he donated to the BYU professor uh, of just like personal letters and then all his lab notebooks and then going to 20 different archives to get his various letters. So you see how, you know, he thought it was really great. He loved America. He loved uh, the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, which is like Switzerland without all the rules. And he got his own lab and a lab assistant. But then, you know, he gets sucked deeper and deeper into it. And back then, his assignments were sort of compartmentalized, but over time, he realizes that instead of saving people from horrible bug-borne diseases, he's trying to figure out how to make them more deadly. And you can see when he's doing, uh, you can see the moral dilemma between the lines in his letters back to his parents in Switzerland, you know, where he's, or his mentor in Switzerland, where he's putting plague and fleas, and, oh, he has a new son at home, you know, and it brings new meaning to not wanting to bring your work home, you know, so the most deadly disease on the planet. You're working on it during day, and then you're hugging your baby at night, and then, you know, yellow fever, which is a horrible disease to get. He's putting that in mosquitoes and trying to get mosquitoes to reproduce more uh, so they could put millions, you know, they could spray millions over. They did tests over poor African-American towns in Georgia and Florida. (laughs) It's just... Uh, so to me, that was interesting, and, and what's yeah. interesting about his character is really complicated because he was such a good guy, and in the end, he realized that he could make it right by confessing to me and a couple other journalists. And to me, the evidence to that is the, the box where he had his most revealing sort of biological weapons um, notes from Fort Detrick, Maryland. Was there was a yellow sticky on the top of it that said. Um, I always wondered why somebody didn't do something, and and I realized I was that someone, you know. So to me, that was a voice from the grave because he was dead then. It was him saying, "Okay, I know what I did, and I'm going to try to make it right." This is a very serious topic. You wrote about a very very serious topic, obviously. But did you enjoy writing it? Well, um, so it was it was really hard because it was really dark. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't talk about it at work. You know, I had a job that was an NIH-funded job, and mm-hmm. I'm writing about how the NIH was complicit in biological weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> a bit of a conflict um, there, yeah. You know, you go to a cocktail party with your friends and say, you say, oh, I'm writing a book. And they say, what are you writing about? Oh, uh, <laughs> you know, in <laughs> biological weapons, and it's just a complete, uh, oh, over on the other side of the room. So... And it's just dark, you know. It's dark to think that our country that I love so much was doing this to people. You know, you think, oh, Hitler was bad. And, right. Um, and then you realize when, after World War II, we picked the brains of those German scientists mm-hmm. and the Japanese scientists, and then we supersized their diabolic plans. So, uh, you know, to me, exposing this is makes me feel good because I'm, I'm hoping we won't do it again. I'm hoping we won't forget. You mentioned during uh, your talks about this particular topic, and you kind of hinted at it in one of your earlier answers that you 
saw and you expressed a frustration with the quote unquote Lyme disease experts and how they were handling the disease. You mentioned somebody turned their back on you to you when you asked a question. Uh, the CDC doesn't seem to want to talk about it. Not everybody can be involved in a conspiracy uh, of, of hiding the, the true origin of this, I don't think. So what would be the, the cause for such indifference to it? Well, I mean, I, I don't believe in large, massive deep state conspiracies. Mm-hmm. I believe that this whole thing was a uh, series of unfortunate accidents, and I think what we see now is wanting to sweep it under the rug. I mean, maybe calling it a cover-up is too uh, too diabolical. It's more like, oh, we saw what happened with the Tuskegee experiment where we were, you know, not treating African-Americans with syphilis, and that was really expensive to the government. And then, oh, we saw what happened with Agent Orange. We had our, sol- our sailors spraying it, uh, or, well, our, our armed forces spraying it from planes and boats, and then our soldiers got sick and we had to pay for that. So it's more like fear of lawsuits and expensive uh, payoffs that would drain money from the military. So it's more like hoping that it'll go away. Yeah. So I'm uh, an inconvenient sort of truth here. Yeah. I just, uh, but I find it, it seems to extend deeper than that only because as we talked about in the very beginning of this discussion, that doctors don't seem to aggressively want to diagnose it. They can't really be part of, you know, the, 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 um, that attitude that we just, that you just defined, the, you know, their medical professionals are just trying to work with patients. I can't imagine that, that they have an agenda, but they still yet are reluctant to pursue it as a, what seems to be a serious disease. Is, do we have any explanation? Do you have any ideas? Well, it was sort of interesting because with, during the film, I was a critic of academic medicine and then I was in the belly of the beast for almost 10 years at Stanford. So I saw how it operated. And, you know, I think sort of the prevailing thing is a new disease was discovered in the early 80s and a certain number of, a small number of really ambitious academic researchers wanted to be part of that discovery. You know, oh, maybe there's a Nobel Prize in it for me. And so then they got swept up in a vaccine race and, uh, you know, there are pressures to uh, narrow the definition of the disease and uh, so that the vaccine trials look better on paper, I think, or uh, downplay the chronic aspects of it. Because if you have a chronic disease, you know, how can you have a vaccine for it? Yeah. Little buggers in bed, you know. So I think they, the early people in there who are now in their 70s, you know, they published that the disease is a certain way. And now the evidence is coming out that's undeniable that, yeah, it's, it's a more sophisticated bacteria than we realize, and uh, it's devious, and it, especially when it gets with co-infections, it's hard to diagnose and treat. So it's mostly that they don't want to be wrong. They've all published 200 to 300 scientific papers, and they don't want to publish one that says, oops, sorry, the first 150 <laughs> were wrong, and that would ruin their chance of ever getting a grant again. So that's that's that dynamic, which I think is separate than like a cover-up. It's more like wanting to gerrymander the truth. You have a critic um, who is, I guess, a professor at Tufts that has published a piece that implies 
your positions that you've taken in the book are basically, and I'd hate when people use this phrase in a derogatory way, but conspiracy theory. Um, I think uh, there are a lot of things that are quote unquote conspiracy theories that have a lot of merit that need, you know, if we need to be asking the right questions. However, that aside, uh, address that particular issue, this, this criticism coming from that particular professor. Yeah, I took that really personally because I had spent five years working really hard to gather hard evidence. And then when I put it together in a book, I was careful to say, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. This is what I think may have happened, but we need, you know, researchers and other journalists to confirm it. So, you know, I tried really hard to do that. So this was an op-ed and it ran in the Washington Post, and no one had fact-checked it. The professor didn't, and the Washington Post didn't. So that was pretty appalling to me, especially since it linked to my book. So, you know, I said, I'll call this professor. So I called him on a Friday night, and maybe he'd had a glass of wine or something. <laughs> and, and I said, hey, have you actually, I, 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 there's a couple things that are wrong in this op-ed. Have you by chance read my book? And he goes, no, I don't have time to read books. This is a guy who's a veterinarian, and he teaches a biosecurity class. And I'm thinking, well, if you teach biosecurity and someone has said there's this whole tick-borne disease program that I never knew about, I would want to know about it because there's no way he couldn't have known about it. And uh, so then I go through, you know, the things that I thought were wrong. And I said, do you want me to send you a book so that you can look at it? He says, oh, no, I just rip it apart anyway. Then I, then I emailed the, um, the editor who does science stuff at Washington Post. They said, well, it's an op-ed. I don't have to fact check it, you know? So I published a rebuttal online, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's pretty frustrating that just because someone has a professor next to their name, they're right. And then I'm a conspiracy theorist. That's the way the world is now, though. Yeah, it is. And I was it just brought to mind, uh, we had a, a sitting U.S. senator that wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and you would have thought that, um, you know, the world was on fire after uh, he did that. I don't know if you remember that situation, but uh, apparently they do care about op-eds when it's right for them. Um, we got to go back to the COVID-19 uh, discussion a little bit. Uh, there's been so much attention now to the CDC to uh, public health policy, all of these things that people probably didn't pay much attention to prior to COVID arriving here in in this country. Uh, You've done a tremendous amount of looking at all of this stuff because you needed to for your book. Um, So through the prism of what you've learned when researching Forbidden, uh, what do you think of the way we're handling uh, the COVID pandemic, specifically the CDC and our our public health institutions? I I think there are a lot of parallels, and anyone who's gone through their own tick-borne disease journey would say, here, here. What you have are two epidemics. One is very slow-moving, that's Lyme disease, and it doesn't end up with a lot of body bags. You know, Lyme disease, usually it's immune system disabling and you die of something related to the disabled immune system or you become depressed and commit suicide. I mean, there's a lot of Lyme suicides. But COVID, there's just a high death rate. So it's just more noticeable. But, I, you know, the, the things that I've seen structurally 
that were flaws in the CDC that I saw in both diseases are, first of all, the CDC didn't act quickly for early containment. You know, Lyme disease, the cases first showed up in the mid-'70s, or they noticed them in the mid-'70s, and they sort of ignored it. They swept it under the rug. They hid, they hid or minimized the co-infections that uh, complicate the disease. Same with COVID. You know, also they didn't try really hard to use the latest technologies to get an accurate case count. It's what I was, you know, we know how bad the case count is now. Mm-hmm. And even some outside people have started counting them. CDC is so bad about that. Um, and then there's a leadership issue. Uh, you know, they're not informing the public of the real facts and the, the developing um, things we know about it. And we're seeing that with the chronic symptoms. Like with COVID, when the cases first started coming out, oh, the symptom list was very narrow. Oh, it's a fever and a cough, you know. But it turns out there are all these other freaky symptoms like, you know, loss of smell and, um, and, and then the fact that the illness doesn't just go away in a couple of weeks. It can last for months and months. So we've seen that with chronic Lyme too. And it's, it's so bad in chronic Lyme because they don't, they don't even admit that the, the disease can be chronic. You know, it's, they call it post-Lyme, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. They call it a syndrome, which, um, and, and there is no insurance, medical insurance reimbursement code for chronic Lyme. So they're in complete denial that, that that's a real problem, which means that medical insurance won't reimburse the cost of treating it. And it's, for both diseases, it's just super expensive. In looking back at the way the CDC handled the COVID epidemic, I mean, you can, you can watch particularly Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, uh, say one thing in, in February or March and then, then say something completely contradictory in June. I suppose that's the nature of, you know, something that's unknown and, and learning about it over time. I'm going to take that position. Do you disagree with that at all? Do you think there's a, there was something more dishonest about what was going on there? No, I, I sort of respect Dr. Fauci and the fact that he can stand up to power. Um, and, and I see that this, with both diseases, it's an emerging, emerging disease, and you can't admit that you know everything about it in the right. beginning because we, we're barely starting to track the data. Uh, so you have to be open-minded and flexible about what it is. Right. And so, you know, so there were contradictions and I think that can be, that can be excused and understood. Uh, I guess some of the question is what, how can we be sure that what we're being told now is the right information if it wasn't the right information three months ago? Yeah, I, I think truth is pretty squishy right now. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, um, I, you know, if I want to know the truth, I have to go to the actual journal article and read yeah. it and decide myself, I think. Or I have a few trusted people that read all those articles and I ask them. And so, but how much, how much does do weather patterns have to do with Lyme disease specifically because it is tick borne? Well, without a doubt, climate change has made tick borne diseases worse. So, you can already see it this year. They had a mild 
winter in the Northeast, and so their tick populations were super high this year. All I got to tell you is, I lived I live in the Northeast, and it didn't seem mild to me. I'm going to say that right now. Okay, okay. And it was cold. This is what I heard from the Pennsylvania. People I know. Who, I hear that too. I hear that too, and it just I'm like, man, I don't know who's measuring this stuff, but man, it was grueling and long to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. Who knows? Well, when think when the climate and the flora and fauna are stable, you know, we reach a balance. We have an ecosystem out of balance now. So everything's out of whack. Weather, like California, um, tick populations are soaring in certain regions. It's just a mess. One of the things that COVID has done is changed, changed uh, people's patterns and activities. People aren't, a lot of people aren't going to work. They're working from home if they're fortunate enough to be able to work from home. Um, and they're doing a lot of different things, you know, maybe spending more time outside. And uh, when people have more time outside, they're more exposed to the possibility of a tick bite. Uh, how do you, what do you recommend people do? And I don't know if you've spent a whole lot of time with this particular part of the discussion, but what do you recommend people do to try to avoid being bitten by a tick? And if they have been, uh, what's your recommendation on their uh, immediate course of action to try to get some um, answers as it relates to a, something, a tick bite? Yeah, so the number one, I, I worry about this a lot for my kids, too, and, and uh, who go hiking around California because there's certain spots of California with Lyme disease cases that are just as bad as Lyme, Lyme, Connecticut. It's just a different strain that doesn't necessarily show up on the East Coast test. Um, so I, I say be religious about tick checks. Um, they say, you know, put socks over your, your pants, but yeah. I think a lot of people in California just wear shorts. So tick checks, religious on you and your dog. Uh, if you have wear clothes on a hike, Wash and dry them. Do not save them for the next day because the ticks can hide out on your clothes. If you find an embedded tick, um, there are many places. Pull it out, put it in a plastic baggie with a little piece of damp tissue or whatever, and send it for tick testing. Because actually the tick testing, it's free in a lot of places or very inexpensive. And it's faster than waiting for your body to create antibodies for a disease you may or may not have that may or may not be picked up by our really bad tests. So I would do that because... So they, they, can, uh, they can get the answer from the tick itself much more quickly? Yeah, they can. They just, you know, smush it, do a DNA test. So the tick tests are DNA tests versus the human tests are only antibody tests. So they're not direct evidence of the diseases, you know, in you. And there are like 20 diseases that can hang out in a tick and make you sick. Some can even kill you. So if you go to the doctor, you know, when you start getting symptoms or a rash, that's way later, and they'll only test you for Lyme disease, and they'll wait and see what it, what it comes up. And if you're still sick and you're negative for Lyme disease, they'll test you for something else. So you're months into it versus testing the tick. Now, the CDC on their website says don't bother testing with ticks. It's inaccurate. But, mm. you know, being an engineer, I say the more data, the better. The um, last few encounters with a tick that I've had is, have basically come because they've gotten on my dog. And, um, you know, my kids uh, now have a habit of taking a lint roller and rolling it over the dog if the dog's been outside for an extended period of time. And they frequently will find ticks on the, on the, on the roller. Is there any way to, to, other than just checking, is there any way to minimize the risks from a, a dog or a pet? 
Well, I, I mean, I think the uh, the oral sort of heartworm tick pills work really well. There's also tick collars. Uh, my son recently went hiking in Marin Headlands, and his dog came out with a tick, and he wasn't doing that oral thing. I think the oral pills for tick prevention work pretty well with dogs. Um, yeah. And they just happen to, they, they, but they can carry them on their coat and then they can get on you. So you've got to be careful. Right, especially if you sleep with your dogs. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the big question here, too, is that you've become quite an expert in, in researching this type of thing. You've opened a lot of doors and you've got your eyes on a lot of places and people. Are you going to apply this knowledge and um, this research ability and maybe do a book on COVID? Um. COVID isn't on the list just because there's so many, you know, really top-notch journalists already focused on that for the last year. But one thing about this journey into all the Cold War crazy experiments, I have so many ideas for other books. So right now I'm just sort of like going down the rabbit hole to see (laughs) what's the best story. The other thing is my book has been optioned for uh, a TV series. Oh, wow. That's terrific news. So that's under development now, and I'm helping them in any way I can. Um, so that's can, very exciting. Can you tell us where it might end up being? Is, is it with a, a network or a, a, a streaming service or something? So it'll be a streaming service. Um, it's in, you know, they're pitching it now, so okay. I can't really say. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that's exciting though. That's terrific, Chris. So Chris, the bit, the book is called, uh, Bitten, the secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons. Where can people find it? Well, any place you buy books. It's published through HarperCollins. Um, you can buy it through Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or any of the indie bookstores. And it's in Kindle and an audio version, too. I know a lot of people with Lyme disease have visual disturbances, so a lot of the Lyme patients listen to the audiobook. And, and bringing this uh, conversation full circle to where we started it, what is your, your recommendation for somebody who may be experiencing symptoms of Lyme disease and are not getting the answers they want from their medical doctor? Um, I feel very strongly that you should find someone who's experienced in tick-borne diseases. Just like if you had a serious brain tumor, you would go to, to the physician who, or the surgeon who had treated, successfully treated that brain tumor. Because um, the Mixed tick-borne diseases are really complicated. Uh, different cocktails of drugs work on different co-infections. So uh, the other thing I would say is no one ever changed the mind of an infectious diseases doctor about Lyme disease. So don't even try. <laughs> just, just There are um, two websites where you can get recommendations. One is an excellent website. It's called LymeDisease.org, and it has all the patient information you'll need to know to get quick treatment, and they give doctor recommendations, too. And then there's also ILADS.org, gives you doctor recommendations, and that is I-L-A-D-S.org. Is there a special kind of doctor that, that specializes in this, or is it just a, a maybe regular medical doctor that, that has worked with a lot of cases? A lot of them are community physicians, and they're in areas that are hot spots for Lyme disease, and uh, most doctors don't want to mess with it because it's you. A lot of them put their medical licenses at risk by treating with long-term antibiotics because that's not what the medical journals say. But they know by trial and error that this is what works, and they have to see these patients at the grocery store and the movie theater. You know, yeah. so 
they and they go to their own conferences and they learn the best protocols. So I mean, I wasted a year it, with the naysayer <laughs> doctors, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was a valuable year. And if I had been treated, you know, in the first six months, I could have walked away and never turned back. And there would never be a documentary. I was going to say we we wouldn't have this book right. <laughs> to teach the rest right. of us. But right. uh, don't do what I did. <laughs> Well, thank you for going through that for us, even though I'm sure it was there was nothing pleasurable about it. It was a real nightmare. But uh, the good from it is the fact that you wrote this book and you're sharing the story and you're teaching people not only about what our government was up to, but um, what they can do if they, in fact, are exposed to this disease. Chris, promise you'll come back again. Love having you on the program. It's always informative, interesting, and fun, and I appreciate your time tonight. Well, thanks so much for the invitation, JV. I really appreciate it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.